We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing, 21st section, or 21st session of our exploration of Kandelvi's book. We are now doing misconceptions about the Hanafi Madhab, which is page 76 of the book. Starting with Ibn Hajar Makki. <clears throat> Ibn Hajar Makki said, the accusation against the Hanafis that they oppose the authentic ahadith of the Blessed Prophet وسلم, without any proof is because the accusers did not research the principles of the Hanafi Madhab. So, so <clears throat> usually people have been splitting up. Um, there's Ahl al-Hadith and Ahl al-Ra'i. So Ahl al-Hadith would be, in theory, the people who are following Hadith. And Ahl al-Ra'i would be the people who are following their, their intellectual reasoning. And that's like a complete misreading of all four schools of Sunni, Sunni law. Because all of them are Ahl al-Hadith and all of them are Ahl al-Ra'i. Meaning all of them are using the text as the foundation, but then they use different methodologies, which is what we're going to call Ra'i. But Ra'i is misleading. They use different methodologies on how to uh, fit the Hadith altogether. Right? And so people used to say that the Hanafis were specifically Ra'i, where it was pure intellectual reasoning and such. But that's wrong as well. We're about to see. <coughs> is it, is that, was that like prevalent? When? I think the theory actually comes from Orientalists. Okay. I think um, those types of categorizations. I could be wrong. Yeah. He elaborated on the principles of the Hanafi Madhab, as has, as has been seen quoted, as, had, as has been quoted in the introduction of Oja as saying, one of the many principles of the Hanafi Madhab is that a singular chain of transmission, narration, will not be accepted if it contradicts an agreed-upon injunction. Also, a narration will also be considered uh, abrog abrogated if the narrator's companion, or the uh, uh, own practice is against it. Likewise, a narration will be rejected if a narrator's narrator narrates something out of the ordinary that has not been narrated by any of his contemporaries. Okay, so see what's going on here. There's looking at what can we evaluate as the default practice from that generation, okay? And then if someone is doing something different, then why, right? And, and so they're establishing what seems to be the consistent practice, okay? Good. Another principle is that a ruling against a criminal will be over, overturned if a singular, singular chain of transmission narration raises any doubt about the ruling. This is because the Hanafis do not accept doubt, shubha, in matters related to criminal law. Another principle is that the singular chain of transmission narration will be considered abrogated if the companions of the Allah disagreed upon any issue in which the narration was ignored. Also, a narration with a singular chain of transmission will be rejected if it contradicts the explicit uh, meaning of an ayah of the Qur'an. This is because the Qur'an is definitive, while the singular, singular chain of transmission narration presumptive. Okay, so to explain that, <clears throat> I mean, so this whole little passage could be a complete book on its own. Uh, but some of the key points for our purposes that'll stay, uh, one of the questions is, when you're looking at a passage, do we all agree that it's categorically clear? Qat'i, right? Or is it not categorically clear, meaning dhani, Okay. And so likewise with the hadith, okay, if you have one chain uh, 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 for one narration, so it's a singular chain, and even the content is dhani, then, okay, it's not going to override a qat'i ayah. 
It could be that this is an answer that the Prophet peace one is giving to this person, or it could be some other questions, right? Yeah. <coughs> so in a nutshell, it's the second, the next thing you're about to read, uh, and it is mandatory. I totally, oh yeah, and it is ma mandatory to choose the stronger evidence over the weaker one. Okay, that's that's the key principle. Yeah. What is the strength of your evidence? That's the bottom line. Another principle is that a singular chain of transmission narration is rejected if it opposes a known sunnah. Yeah. These principles vindicate Imam Abu Hanifa from the false accusations that he threw out singular chain of transmission narrations without justifiable uh, mm -hmm. reason that arose from the hearts of jealous men and the, those ignorant of his principles and of the concept of ijtihad. This also clarifi clarifies that Imam Abu Hanifa never ignored a hadith until he found evidence stronger than it. See, it's the same point. What is the stronger evidence? That's what's being used. Yeah. And, and the, it's saying that these criticisms came from jealous people or just people who are just ignorant, mm -hmm. right? Which is all well and good, fine. This also clear... Okay. <clears throat> Imam... Uh, no. <clears throat> Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri says all the Hanafis are unanimous that in the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa a weak hadith is more preferable to any opinion that is reached thereafter. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> Ibn Hazm, he's from about 200-300 years after Imam Abu Hanifa and so the Zahiri school they're basically saying we're just going to take the literal interpretation of everything. Okay, And and it never was anything more of an academic exercise because if you're taking the literal interpretation of, of everything, you don't have flexibility, yeah. which means your population is not going to grow. And so you find them, uh, because of the size of a scholar he was, you find people are often referring to him. Um, but so here he's saying, even he's saying, Abu Hanifa would still take a weak hadith over an opinion, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which is consistent uh, um, historically with many of these, these big schools. But the point that is coming from him is also significant. Because if there's one person who would say, these are just people who follow conjecture, he would say it. It is narrated that Sha'arani, Imam, Imam Abu Hanifa, was the most God-fearing, the most scholarly, the most pious, the most careful in matters of deen, and the furthest of all people from interjecting his own opinions in deen. He never decided an issue until he gathered, gathered all his companions in one group. And when they all agreed that it fell according to the rules and principles of the Hanifi Madhab, he would say to Imam Abu Yusuf, write this issue in such and such chapter. Yeah. So we're saying that he was very scrupulous, very detail-oriented, and didn't decide until he put it all together. Which, you know, mashallah, that's, uh, that's why we still have his name. It has been mentioned in Ojaz that, uh, that whenever an issue was raised before him, he would ask his companions in the gathering, "What a hadith do you have on this matter?" In this matter, when any, and when everybody narrated whatever they knew, and Imam Abu Hanifa narrated what he knew, he would take the opinion with the most narrations. In the introduction of Ojaz, I wrote at length on the various accusations leveled against Imam Abu Hanifa, and their answers. The principle of Imam Abu Hanifa that a singular chain of transmission narration should not oppose the explicit meaning of an ayah or a known sunnah of the Blessed Prophet is actually taken from the words of Umar regarding the divorce of Fatima bin, uh, bin Qais. Fatima bin Qais complained to the Blessed Prophet that her husband divorced her. According to Fatima bin Qais, the Blessed Prophet ordered that she would, not, she, she would neither stay in her former husband's home, Sukna, nor receive allowance uh, from him during her waiting period. 
Umar radiallahu anhu said, We cannot ignore the injunctions of the Quran and Sunnah because of one, moment, one, one woman. Who knows whether she still remembers or has forgotten what he told her. So you see what's being said? Yeah. That, alright, here's one example that seems to contradict, right? It's an example potentially going back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. But it's looked, like, looked at as a unique case, right? Just like in class today, you know, someone asked, okay, do the ends justify the means? And I said, well, there might be exceptions um, that, that might get applied for a particular situation. And that's what's being applied here. According to some narrations, he said maybe she is just con- uh, conjecturing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Same point, yeah. So the, que- uh, the, the question he's raising is, okay, this is one person. Is this person remembering properly? Right? Yeah. And, and, and so is this person, uh, we don't have enough to say, if we had another example where the Prophet was kind of saying the same thing to someone else, then we could say, yeah. But if we don't have another example, we can't take that as a strong evidence. Okay. I mean, it's a lot of these. The, the key point for this whole chapter is uh, that we're looking at what is the stronger evidence and how do we figure it out. Okay. And another way is how do we minimize doubt? Mm-hmm. And you can minimize doubt if you have more examples of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> if the hadith is authentic, it is my madhab. This is a famous quote uh, from the four Imams, which has been narrated with different wordings. Hafiz uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani in Fasul Bari elaborates on this understanding, on, on this under the chapter of raising both hands when standing from bowing. He narrates a quote from Ibn Naqiq al-Aid, who said, according to the principles of Imam Shafi'i, raising his raising the hands should be desirable. And comments as far as the statement as the statement that this should be the madhab of Imam Shafi'i because Imam Shafi'i said, when a hadith is authentic, it is my madhab is objectionable. Hafiz ibn Hajr continues, the reason for objection is that we can only practice upon the statement of Imam Shafi'i when it is known that the hadith did not reach him. But if it did, and he rejected or interpreted it, then we cannot accept it. Mm-hmm. Hafiz ibn Hajr spoke the truth. Okay, so, in simple language, like, okay, if the hadith is authentic, it is my madhab. But we have to figure out, alright, did that particular um, scholar of that school, did that person accept it or reject it? Right. Yeah. I mean, if it didn't reach uh, the, uh, that person, then we can say, yeah, it's authentic. Therefore, it's his mouth help. But yeah. you know, what was that person's opinion? I mean, again, these are these are side points. Uh, the key point here in this section is how is hadith taken? Okay, and it's one thing if the hadith is in a book, because remember Bukhari, you know, Sahih Muslim. These all came after, yeah. right? And so, so uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, they're using hadith. Right, um, and then most of those hadith you will find then in these other collections, or I should say, all you'll find in the other collections. But someone else later on might be saying it's authentic or not. Okay. Imam Malik narration, narrates the narration of Ibn Umar radiallahu an in his Muwatta that when the Blessed Prophet wasallam raised his hands from bowing, he, he uh, raised himself from bowing. He raised his hands, though in Mudawana. He is famously quoted as saying that, according to him, raising the hands during salah is weak, except in the open opening takbir. He also said, "I do not find raising the hands anywhere else except in the opening takbir." I have expounded this narr- this issue in Ojas. Okay, so Imam Malik's central book Muatta. I mean, that's not the right way to put it, but the book that is attributed to him Muatta is a collection of the hadith that correspond to the practice of the people of Medina. Okay, 
And so there, he, uh, he has a hadith attributed to Ibn Omar, Abdullah Ibn Omar, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, would raise his hands in each of the rakats, right? But then Mudawana is a commentary on Mawatta. Okay. And Mudawana, they're quoting Imam Malik, where Imam Malik's opinion is that, no, you only do takbir the first, uh, the first thing. And so now we have two different uh, uh, readings. One is a hadith, and then the other one is the opinion of the interpretation. Uh, so Imam Malik has collected this hadith, but apparently Imam Malik's opinion is still, no, you just raise it for the first takbir. And so this is, the key point is, these are those details that everyone has to figure out based on, you know, the strength of their proofs. Mm -hmm. So just because it's an authentic hadith doesn't mean that it's the mm -hmm. In Badrul Majhud, many hadith are narrated about executing a thief who steals rep repeatedly under the chapter of thief who steals repeat repeatedly. It is narrated by Ibn Qayyim. Uh, that Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was asked, why do you reject these ahadith? He replied, because of the ahadith of Uthman an, in which it says that a Muslim cannot, can only be executed for three reasons and stealing is not mentioned amongst mm -hmm. them. The subject has been discussed at length in Badul Majhud. The only point I wish to make is that Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal knew of the ahadith about executing a thief who, who steals repeatedly, but did not accept them. In the, in the disagreement, uh, regarding the definition of a large body of water. The madhab of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is that anything more than two large clay vessels, qullatain, there is variance in, uh, between Hanbali scholars as to the exact size of these vessels, of large is a, of water is a large body of water. Though Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal authenticates the bi'r al-buda hadith, which is contrary to his own madhab, as mentioned in al-mughni. Therefore, whatever Hafiz ibn Hajar said about the statement of Imam Shafi'i was true. Okay, and he's giving examples. For our purposes, he's, uh, you don't need to remember for now the, the, the particular details. But it's just showing, saying that uh, if the Hadith has reached Imam Shafi'i, then we've got to see what he says about it, right? If not, then you can say, yeah, sure, it's authentic and it's the method. The Shaykh of Islam, Hafiz ibn Taymiyyah, in his booklet, Raf al Malam, narrates 10 different reasons why the Imams rejected a hadith. One of them is, the, is that the hadith reached the Imam but did not, he did not authenticate it, or that he implemented certain conditions for singular chain of transmission narration, which this hadith did not fulfill. Another reason is that he received the hadith, but he interpreted it, interpreted it to remove a contradiction between this and another hadith. After narrating the 10 reasons, Ibn Taymiyyah says, there are the apparent reasons for rejecting a hadith. It is possible the scholar had another reason which we are unaware of because the sea of knowledge is very deep and we cannot grasp all the secrets that are hidden in the hearts of these scholars. Sometimes the scholar may reveal his proof while at other times he may not. Sometimes he reveals it, but sometimes the proof reaches us at other times and it does not. Even when it reaches us sometimes, we are able to figure out figure how the evidence was derived, while at other times we cannot. And this is regardless of whether the proof is correct or incorrect. This is something that can only be disclosed to one who is erudite in the hadith, as in the four imams. Many authentic and clear ahadith reached them, but they rejected them based on strong evidences. There are many authentic narrations on raising the, hand, the hands during salah, but neither, uh, neither the four imams nor the majority of the hadith masters accepted them. What do you think of that last sentence in terms of the way people pray? saying there are many authentic narrations about raising the hands, but none of the four imams 
nor the majority of the Hadith masters, the Muhaddithun, yeah. uh, accepted them. Yeah. And so, what else is being said here <coughs> is that for many people, the modern approach is that, all right, if this is an authentic Hadith, this is what we have to do. Yeah. But he is making this very, very important point that, I mean, all these, these founding scholars reached, received authentic Hadith, but for various reasons, they didn't accept them. And most of the time, we can figure out why. In some cases, we can't. Um, but the point is that um, today, some will say, okay, if it's in Bukhari, then it's authentic. And from these four schools will say, um, just because it's authentic doesn't mean that's your Islam. Right? It doesn't mean that that's what you're supposed to practice. Meaning, a hadith is not automatically sunnah. Mm-hmm. Right? The sunnah is found in the hadith, but the sunnah is actually you know, what people are practicing and the hadith are there to back it up. Okay. Usually today, it goes the other way around. And so it's like our Islam is being turned upside down. Right? And the easiest way to remember is that these, these four schools came before the written hadith came. Mm-hmm. And they use hadith, meaning Mawatta is right up there, and that's, you know, 100 years before Bukhari. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so this is the important thing to keep in mind in terms of the practice of Islam. Just because it's Bukhari and Muslim doesn't mean that this is exactly what you do. And many times you're going to find a hadith in Bukhari and you find the opposite, or in Muslim especially, and you find the opposite right after it. But they're both being kept because they're authentic. So what are Bukhari and Muslim giving us? They're giving us the raw material. That's what they're compiling. Okay, let's stop right here. And next time, inshallah, we'll do respect for all madhabs and imams. Any last questions or thoughts? Alright, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka natubu ilayku, akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.